This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com with the season premiere of BOA Audio Season 4. We are back. Your long three-month wait is over. And I'm excited to be returning here to the proverbial microphone, presiding over the next nine months' worth of BOA Audio episodes, which will make up BOA Audio Season 4. Hopefully you all had a great break, enjoyed your summer, the remainder of it, enjoyed the beginning of the autumn, and you've rejoined us now as we look out onto the horizon of 31 episodes of BOA Audio Season 4, beginning tonight with the legendary Jim Mars. Before we dive into the preview for the program, we got a couple of in-house notes to take care of. For starters, I want to dedicate this week's season premiere episode to two former BOA Audio guests who passed away over the summer, Kent Daniel Bentkowski, who starred in two episodes in BOA Audio Season 2, and the esteemed Monsignor Corrado Balducci, who was one of the very first guests we ever had during our little mini-series known as BOA Audio, the X-Conference Sessions. I discussed these two great men at length during my appearance on Karen Dolan's Through the Keyhole podcast, but let me just say I really enjoyed working with both of these guests, and they are greatly, greatly missed. Our thoughts and prayers, of course, go out to their friends and family, and, as noted, the season premiere of BOA Audio Season 4 is dedicated to them. On to our other in-house note. Thankfully, it's some happier news. It is my pleasure to announce the winners of the BOA Audio Baseball Special Predictions Contest. With an astounding four out of eight predictions, ultra-popular ufologist and historian Richard Dolan is the 2008 champion of the BOA Audio Baseball Special Predictions Contest. Congratulations to Richard Dolan. We also had an additional contest at the official BOA forum, www.theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com, and we have winners for that contest as well. It was a tie between Smokin' Cat and Red Sun Superman, so congratulations to those two guys for picking up the US of E championship for baseball predictions. Big thanks to all the folks who participated in the contest, both on the BOA Audio Baseball Special and at the BOA Forum. We'll do it all again this coming spring for the 2009 contest. Best of luck to all participants in next year's race. One last tiny bit of business to discuss here. You want to make sure you stick around for the end of the show. There's always something fun there at the end of the program, and we're going to try and do some more stuff here for Season 4 to spice up the end of the program. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Because it's time now, of course, to preview BOA Audio Season 4's season premiere with the venerable Jim Mars. Longtime listeners know there's only one way to kick off the season, and that is with Jim Mars. And we're going to be discussing his latest masterpiece, The Rise of the Fourth Reich. During this conversation, we're going to have some big picture analysis of the book, along with examination of some of the finer details found in Jim's research. 
We're going to talk about what Jim means by the term Fourth Reich, the bizarre story of Rudolf Hess, the U.S.-USSR space programs of the 1960s and how they were fueled by former Nazi scientists, infamous Nazi super soldier Otto Skorzeny, the little-known May 1979 assassination attempt on Jimmy Carter, plus Nazi social trends that have taken hold in contemporary America. In addition to all that, we're going to talk about the JFK assassination, the 2008 presidential election, the past year in ufology and 9-11 research, and, as is custom here on the program, tons and tons more. The wait is over. It's BOA Audio. It's Season 4. It's Jim Mars. Let the games begin. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Jim Mars, let me give you a little bit of background on him. After graduating with a degree in journalism from the University of North Texas, Jim Mars served in the U.S. Army, after which he became a reporter for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. Jim worked for and owned several Texas newspapers before becoming an independent journalist-slash-author. His in-depth investigative book, Alien Agenda, has been cited as the best-selling non-fiction book on UFOs in the world, having been translated into several languages. He is the author of the New York Times bestsellers Crossfire, The Plot That Killed Kennedy, a basis for the Oliver Stone film JFK, and Rule by Secrecy, The Hidden History That Connects the Trilateral Commission, The Freemasons, and The Great Pyramids. Other books by Jim Mars include Psy Spies, The Terror Conspiracy, and his latest book, The Rise of the Fourth Reich. His website is www.jimmars.com, J-I-M-M-A-R-R-S dot com. Check it out. You've waited long enough, my friends. Let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on September 17th, 2008. The legendary Jim Mars talks about the rise of the Fourth Reich on the season premiere of BOA Audio Season 4. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the season premiere of Been All of America Audio Season 4. As the longtime listeners of the program know, we always kick off the season with someone who was hugely influential in my interest in the esoteric. If it wasn't for our season premiere guest, Jim Mars, I, I wouldn't even be doing this show. You can kind of blame him, I guess, for the for Banal of America because he was definitely one of the inspirations for me to look into the whole world of esoterica and esoteric mysteries. We closed out the season premiere last year with a tease for The Rise of the Fourth Reich, which was released this past June, and we're going to dive in and discuss The Rise of the Fourth Reich with him today here on the show. Outstanding book. It's a tour de force. I just finished it last night. I loved it. Highly recommended. It's another classic Jim Mars uh, tome here, so you got to pick it up, folks. He's part of the fabric and the foundation of this program. He is the legendary Jim Mars, kicking off the fourth season it's just a real pleasure and an honor to speak with you again, Jim. Welcome back to Banal of America, and thank you for helping us kick off the new season of BOA Audio. Well, uh, it's my pleasure, Tim, and congratulations on uh, jumping into a whole new season. Thank you very much. As the leaves start to turn, I know I'll be talking to Jim Mars again, so it's always <laughs> I always enjoy that part of the season. Well, let's talk about the rise of the Fourth Reich, because you sort of teased it at the end of last year's season premiere. You said all you could tell us was the title, and now, of course, it's been out. And as I said, it's a tour de force and just another outstanding piece. It's like it's like an updated version of Rule by Secrecy, sort of sort of uh, puts part of Rule by Secrecy under the magnifying glass and really uh, draws out a lot of stuff. It's amazing. I highly recommend it. What made you decide to sort of tackle this issue next? I know last year we had you on for the re-release of Size Buys, and before that it was 9-11 you were talking about, but now you've gone back 
You've looked at World War II. You've looked at the Nazi influence that's spread across the globe since uh, World War II. What made you decide to sort of go in this direction and, and put together Rise of the Fourth Reich? Well, as you so uh, correctly surmised, this is kind of a follow-on to Rule by Secrecy. I wanted to bring it up right up to the date and show uh, some of the trends and some of the fads and some of the things that are happening in our society today. And when you look at who's behind all that, the people who own the multinational corporations, the Bilderberg Group, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission, which are playing a prominent role in this current election. Behind John McCain is Henry Kissinger in the Council on Foreign Relations, and behind Obama is Zygmunt Brzezinski in the Trilateral Commission, which was created by David Rockefeller and an offshoot of the Council on Foreign Relations. So you got the same people controlling both ends of the spectrum, and of course they keep everybody uh, from looking at that by distracting them with, well, I didn't like the dress she was wearing today, and he said something, but that's not really good, and, and blah, 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 and it just keeps us totally off balance and totally not looking at the reality of what's going on. Before I get into more, let me let, let me try to set a few things straight for you, Tim, okay. and, and your listeners. When I say the Fourth Reich, uh, of course, I am extending out from Hitler's Third Reich. Um, but the German word for Reich, with a capital R, simply means empire. And I don't think there's anybody today that can reasonably argue that America is not the preeminent empire in the world today. And then, but what's interesting is, is that in the German Reich with a, uh, small r means wealthy or rich. So it's not too much of a stretch to say that Reich means an empire of the wealthy. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we can see that that certainly is today. The main thing I want to point out is when I say that America is becoming a fourth Reich, I don't want people to get the idea that I'm saying that America has been taken over by goose-stepping Germans, okay? Yeah. That's not it at all. It is the people, the families, the corporations, some individuals who actually funded Hitler, promoted Nazism uh, before, during, and after World War II, then brought Nazis over to this country and began to infuse the National Socialist in, in doctrine into the United States and has changed our once free democratic republic into uh, a centralized government practicing national socialism. And the acronym for national socialism is Nazi. Uh, so when I say they're Nazis, I'm not talking about Germans. I'm talking about people with a national socialist uh, ideal. In fact, when you hear the term neoconservatives or neocons, as the Bush administration has been packed with, uh, just understand that they are simply national socialists masquerading under the name neocons. Uh, and this is what throws a lot of people off, Tim, because they vote for Bush, for example, in the past two elections, thinking that they're voting for a good conservative, a compassionate conservative. And these are all good people. These are all rock band, mostly Republican, Constitution-based conservatives, okay? And yeah. they want they want less centralized government. They want more border security. They want better education. They want 
to promote family values. They have all the right instincts, but they've been led down the primrose path by national socialists who have styled themselves conservatives, and, and it's thrown a real disconnect in there because these uh, true constitutional conservatives can't understand why they keep voting for these conservatives, and all they get are more and more socialist programs. Exactly, yeah. The beat goes on no matter who gets elected, it seems. Exactly. And uh, we're going to see the same thing with this election. If you vote for uh, Barack Obama, you're going to get the New World Order and the North American Union. And uh, if you vote for John McCain, you're going to get the New World Order and the North American Union, only maybe not quite as fast. Exactly. Yeah, it's just a matter of the window dressing, I guess you could say. Now, I want to dive into some specific points in the book because I read it, of course, as usual with my Jim Mars books. I read it with a fine-tooth comb. The first thing I want to talk to you about is you do a great job in the beginning of the book really talking about the world of the Nazis in, in the World War II era and that whole decade or so of dominance by them in Germany and, and the whole war pretty much. You do a great job talking about it. And I want to ask you about Rudolf Hess and his trip to England because I was really surprised that you sort of say – that it may have been a secret attempt to sort of uh, get some capitulation from the U.K. to the Nazis by the powers that be, you know, the royal family and the, and the financiers and stuff like that in England. As long as the royal family could continue on, they were going to uh, give up, I guess you could say, to the Nazis. Yeah, what it is is that as recently as 2007, some documents were made public in England that showed that during the war, the Queen Mother of England uh, wrote that she was perfectly okay with a Nazi occupation of England as long as they guaranteed the monarchy. Uh, and, of course, this shouldn't be surprising anybody because the monarchy of England, the Windsors, who had changed their name from the Mountbatten, who had changed their names from the Battenberg, they, they're all German. Germans. They're of German heritage. So it's like, sure, we'll let our cousins come in and run everything. It's uh, it's really amazing. And yes, the Rudolf Hess affair, which most people don't even know about, and yet it was a big deal at the time. And it's kind of been an ongoing thing because I remember as a reporter in the 70s and 80s, there was a growing worldwide movement to free Rudolf Hess. He was the last of the Nazi leaders. Uh, he had flown to England in May of 1941 and was taken into custody and was held for the rest of his life in Spandau Prison outside Berlin. And uh, there was a growing movement saying, look, the guy, the guy's, you know, he's, he's in his dotage. Uh, he, he can't be a harm to anybody. You know, why all this cost of these three powers, Britain, the United States, and Russia, providing guards for him and food for him, just let the poor old guy out. And, of course, just as they were about to achieve success in the release of Rudolf Hess, uh, the British said, oh, he was found hanged, uh, committed suicide. And, you know, because he was about to be released. So that should cause uh, any thinking person to go, wait a minute, what's happening there? And, of course, the uh, the conventional viewpoint is that Hess just kind of went nuts, uh, got an airplane, flew to England thinking he was going to try to arrange a peace agreement between Britain and Germany and thereby make himself a big hero and gain favor with Hitler. Uh, but after that happened, both Churchill and Hitler both basically said, well, he was just a lone nut, and and everything went on. Well, what you'll read in The Rise of the Fourth Reich, of course, is that, as usual, there was a whole lot more to the story than meets the eye. And to just kind of cut to the chase, this was a genuine peace movement from Hitler 
because Hess had even was in a plane specially designed by Willie Messerschmitt himself, and he had been trained by Hitler's own personal pilot. So you know, this was not just some uh, loose cannon operating on his own. This was an effort to try to reach a peace agreement with the royals in England so that uh, when Hitler was forced to attack Russia in uh June of 1941, and that's another huge issue which you'll probably will probably want to talk about in a minute. But uh, he wanted to make sure that he had his back covered and he didn't have to worry about fighting with England. But but the whole thing blew up because uh, Hess got lost. He he did, he couldn't land where he was supposed to. He ran out of gas. He was forced to bail out, and he was captured. He broke his ankle, and he was captured by a farmer with a pitchfork who turned him over to the home guard. And the whole thing, which was supposed to be a secret mission, turned out to you know blow into the public. So everybody had to disavow. Him. And when you read the whole account, you'll find out all the connections with the British royals and uh, even the connection with Prince Barnhart, who later created the uh, Bilderbergers and who had been a Nazi SS officer. And you can see the maneuvering that takes place at these highest echelons of the globalists. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely uh, one of the highlights of the book for me, uh, enlightening and uh, really eye-opening part of the book, so that's that's kind of why I want to bring it up. Now, you sort of, uh, you intimate here that you'd like to talk about the, the move of Hitler into Russia, so let's talk a little bit about that, because it sounds like uh, there's more to the story than meets the eye, or what we've been told in our history Oh, of course. You classes. know, being a lay historian and a and a kind of a buff on World War II, one of the things that always puzzled me was that in mein, his book, Mein Kampf, Hitler uh, wrote over and over, he said, Germany must never again become involved in a two-front war, because that's what happened to him in World War One. They were facing Russia in the east and France and, and Britain and allies on the west, and, and it's just an, it's an untenable situation. So he said, we must never do this again, and yet in June of 1941, he launches Operation Barbarossa, which was the attack on uh, the Soviet Union. And I never could understand why in the world would he do that, okay? Did he just wake up one morning and say, gee, I think I'll attack Russia today? Uh, what we are now finding out and what, what essentially turns history on its head is that out with documents and narratives coming out of the old Soviet Union uh, from Russia today, we are now uh, learning that Stalin had decided he would never be able to bring communism to Western Europe through free votes. So he was getting ready to launch a military invasion of Europe uh, in July of 1941. So in other words, and the only force that stood a chance of uh, stopping him uh, was Germany. And even that, it was way off balance. Uh, Stalin had more than 20,000 tanks, some of them the heavy KV models and, and even some of the new T-34s that were coming online, whereas Hitler only had 3,600 tanks, and most of those were lightweight PK-2s and 3s. So what do you do if you know you're about to be attacked by a superior enemy? You launch a preemptive strike. Mm-hmm. So instead of waiting till July when Stalin was going to attack, Hitler attacked in June. And as a result, his 
small number of panzers were able to punch right through the Russian lines, and they were able in a short period of time to just scoop up whole divisions, whole armies. It was just a it was a magnificent display of uh, of the uh, Blitzkrieg in action, and is is a textbook example of how to encircle and entrap your enemy. But now we see the reason for that success. The Russians were not in defensive positions. They were in offensive positions. They were poised to attack. Yeah. Okay? So see this? And and, and all of a sudden now we see Hitler, instead of the uh, mad dictator who's who's trying to take over the world, what he did was, and here here's his... Here's his own words in a speech to the Reichstag in December the 11th, 1941. He said, if the wave of more than 20,000 tanks, hundreds of divisions, tens of thousands of artillery pieces, along with more than 10,000 airplanes, had not been kept from being set into motion against the Reich, Europe would have been lost. Whoa. Yeah. Hitler, the savior of Europe from communism, we don't ever get taught that in school. Exactly, yeah. The whole scene back then was amazing stuff. And another uh, point here in the book that I want to talk to you about, because it really was intriguing, we're sort of moving ahead in time here, uh, the space race and how it seemed like the Project Paperclip Germans who were brought over to America, they were keeping in touch and sort of working, it seems maybe uh, hand-in-hand with the, for lack of a better term, you know, Russian Project Paperclip guys that were brought over from Germany to Russia. So uh, talk a little bit about that under the radar working together by these two different factions of Germans. Before you can understand that, you have to understand that it was Wall Street financiers and Bank of England financiers who funded and created communism in Russia back at the time of World War Mm One. But then they grew fearful because the uh, communists in Russia created the Internationale, and they were talking about workers of the world unite. And, you know, why should you be working for a petty salary when you're doing all the work and you're producing the goods, and it's the capitalists that get all the money? You know, and so, it, oh, man, they, oh, we've created a Frankenstein monster here. <laughs> yeah. So they said, we got to put a stop to this. And again, the one country that uh, was in a position to block the spread of communism from Russia was Germany. So they went into Germany and they found an army intelligence agent and uh, who had been infiltrated the German Workers' Party um, and said, you, you like these guys. They want to uh, do away with the Versailles Treaty. They want to rearm Germany. They think the Jews were responsible for our defeat, yada, yada. And, of course, that was Adolf Hitler. So these same people who created communism then began to back Hitler as a block against the spread of communism. And, and then... They found out they created another Frankenstein monster because those Germans just proved to be a little bit too efficient. They overran Poland, Czechoslovakia, and the Low Countries, and France, and were threatening England. So it's like, whoa, we've done it again. Yeah. So you have to understand that the same forces are manipulating on a global basis. That's why they call themselves globalists. Absolutely. They don't really care about the United States. They don't really care about any particular country because they're looking at it from the overview. Mm -hmm. And so after the war, uh, the Russians grabbed as many rocket scientists as they could. We grabbed as many as we could, and we both had rocket German rocket scientists, scientists working uh, both in uh, 
the Soviet Union and in the United States. And what I show in the rise of the Fourth Reich is that on the low level, they were in touch with each other. Apparently, they were under paperclip. There was very little scrutiny given to these scientists. They were allowed to go off on weekends. They were allowed to bring their girlfriends in and wives, sweethearts, and everything else. Uh, their mail was not necessarily monitored. Um, and so apparently they were in touch with each other on a low level. But the key thing is at the highest level, at the level of uh, Alan Dulles, who had been in the OSS and became the longest-serving director of the CIA, John J. McCloy, who was the high commissioner of Germany after the war and yet had been one of the primary funders of Hitler through City National Bank, which, of course, uh, is now Citicorp. Uh, the same people are in charge, and they're bringing all these Nazis in. So the idea seems to be is that we know that the Russians achieved early space successes because they were building huge heavy-lift rockets that just throw something up in the orbit, while we were working on guidance systems and computer control, and that's why they got a little ahead of us because they were able to put the first satellite up, Sputnik. They were able to put the first man in the space, Yuri Gagarin, first woman in space, first dog in space, and, and it was starting to make us look bad. And that's why Kennedy in 1961 uh, proclaimed that uh, he pledged that we were going to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade because we had to show that we were as, at least as good as the Russians. So the idea is is that you have the Russian space program, public space program, you have the NASA, U.S. public space program, but the people at the top were combining these technologies, and there's a third covert space program. And that seems to be the idea, and there is some compelling evidence to show that that very well may be the case. Yeah, that's really been intriguing me for a long time, the idea of a secret space program. And the more I hear about things, it more sounds likely that that is the case. One character in the book who sort of shows up a couple times, I would call him a supervillain almost. That's Otto Scorzani. Talk a little bit about this Otto Scorzani character. Well, you couldn't miss Otto Scorzani because he was well over six foot tall and had a huge dueling scar down the left side of his face. In fact, his nickname was Scar. You know, I'm not sure that you could actually portray Scorzini as an evil person. He was just a super good commando, yeah. and he followed orders. He did what he was told to do. He came to prominence in September of 1943 uh, after uh, most people, again, they don't pay attention in history class, so they don't know any of this stuff, but you'll learn in the rise of the Fourth Reich that uh, with the invasion of Italy by the Allies, the Italians switched sides. They said, okay, that's it, we give up. And they overthrew Mussolini, and they put him under arrest, and they put him in a mountaintop uh, hotel retreat, uh, holding him incommunicado, except Hitler knew where he was, so he sent Otto Scorzini and some German paratroopers, and they made a daring daylight raid on this hotel, and they recaptured or captured Mussolini without firing a shot. And then on a very hazardous takeoff, you just barely managed to get him off the mountaintop in a small plane, took him back to Hitler. Hitler proclaimed Mussolini the true ruler of Italy, and the war in Italy continued till the absolute end of the war, although we were mostly fighting the Germans and not the Italians. Okay, so that, that brought Mussolini, uh, Scorzini, excuse me, to world prominence as, as far as recognition goes. 
And it was just a few months after that that, according to my sources, and that I quote there in the Rise of the Fourth Reich, it was Otto Scorzini who led an SS battalion into the Languedoc region of southern France in the foothills of the Pyrenees Mountains, the home of the uh, Cathars, uh, the, who were the victims of the uh, Vatican's Albigensian Crusade, and the home of the Knights Templars, who had brought back all these secrets and treasure from the Middle East to uh, uh, possibly including Solomon's treasure. And uh, on March the 16th, 1944, uh, Scorzini sent a one-word telegram back to Berlin saying, Eureka, which means I found it. Yeah. And it was signed Scar. So apparently the Nazis got hold of the legendary treasure of Solomon. Incredible. Yeah, just an amazing character. I'm surprised there hasn't been a movie about this guy yet, or maybe there hasn't. I just haven't heard about it yet. But uh, No, I don't think so. But see, that's interesting, too. I mean, not only is there all this, it sounds like it all make a great movie, but you never see this stuff uh, either in the movies or even in the history books. So uh, that's why I feel like it's my obligation as a journalist to dredge this stuff up and present it to people. Absolutely, yeah. And that's why we have you on the show every season, because uh, you always bring the goods. Now I'm going to jump way ahead in time here to uh, something that just completely blew my mind, and that's this uh, Jimmy Carter assassination attempt by two characters, Raymond Lee Harvey and Osvaldo Ortiz. I mean, mean, you couldn't make this stuff up. I mean, this is amazing stuff. In fact, you know, a lot of people say, well, you're just making that up, so I have to pull out the Newsweek article and show it to them. No, it, it actually happened. In fact, if you'll go back and really study it, you'll find that Jimmy Carter, uh, was already under the gun for being a kind of a wishy-washy, do-nothing president. And so he had asked for national television time in the late spring of 1979, and uh, the pundits were saying that he was going to announce sweeping changes within the government, okay, to show that he was really doing something. Uh, and yet uh, on uh, he went to uh, a Cinco de Mayo Hispanic festival out in Los Angeles, where he was uh, under assassination attempt by Lee Harvey and Oswaldo. Uh, And uh, these guys uh, were just street people who said that they had been hired by these gunmen who had come up out of Mexico, and uh, they were supposed to create a diversion, and these riflemen were going to take out Jimmy Carter. And, boy, they downplayed it at the time, act like, oh, there's nothing to that. And yet both of those guys were held in lieu of $500,000 bond uh, and charged with attempted assassination of the President of the United States. And then they just dropped out of sight. You know, you'd think they'd still be in prison, but I could not find any record of them in the prison records today. So whatever happened to them, nobody knows. Uh, and, of course, Carter was not assassinated, but he obviously got the message because he canceled his national TV talk. Uh, he went into seclusion at Camp David, called in everybody, including the preacher Billy Graham, and was quoted as saying, I've lost control of the government. And, again, we hear, see the hidden Nazi mechanizations that were taking place to uh, alter and change and guide the course of history in this country. That was just amazing. I never even heard that story. And I'm sort of like wondering or I'm intrigued or confused, I guess you could say, by you couldn't really call it a coincidence that the one dude's name is Lee Harvey and the other guy's name is Osvaldo. Like, what, what do you what make of that? What are the of, odds of that? Yeah, what are what, the odds of that? Exactly. No, it was a message to Carter that, you know, we can get you just like we got John F. Kennedy. 
and he got the message. Yeah. But in doing this and by downplaying it, and, by, and most of the news stories about that event never carried their name. It was only in this Newsweek article and uh, maybe one or two other places. And, of course, it just gets swept under the rug. And, and like like yourself, you didn't even hear about this story, and most people have not. Well, they have now, thanks to uh, Rise of the Fourth Reich. So uh, I'm glad it got out there. Now, uh, right next to that in the book is, is a story here about the chicanery involved with Ronald Reagan and the vice presidential pick. I mean, this has been kind of discussed before in the past. But I found it really interesting. You sort of uh, lay it out that a lot of that sort of was the doing in a way of the media, like they created the story and then they wagged the dog, if you will, and, and you know, uh, pushed it so hard that Reagan had to go in the other direction and pick Bush. That's right. That's right. Reagan, who had pledged during his campaign that he would never allow George Herbert Walker Bush into uh, his government, Nevertheless, backed off and said, "Oh yeah." And in, in the middle of the convention, when the national news media was uh, calling for a dream ticket, which would have been Reagan with uh, former President Gerald Ford as vice president, of course they were already saying that since Ford had been president, then he should get to choose half the cabinet. Well, you know, so Reagan being faced with the prospects of half a government uh, rushed into the Republican National Convention in the middle of the week, late at night, about 11 o'clock, 11.30, and said, well, let's put to rest all these rumors and everything. I choose George Bush. And again, we see the manipulation that's going on. Uh, John Dean, who was the White House counsel to President Nixon, uh, in a recent book called Broken Government, stated, it's been new on Capitol Hill since about 1997, and about three years after the GOP gained control of the House, it's been new to the White House since 2001 with the arrival of George W. Bush and Richard B. Cheney, although its roots first emerged during the Nixon presidency and began blossoming in the Reagan-Bush senior years. So what's he talking about? What blossomed? What was gaining control in this country? Uh, well, if you ask John Dean, he would probably say neoconservatism. But as I've said before, when you hear neoconservatism, just think national socialism. It was this Nazi uh, doctrine that was beginning to take charge in this country. Again, you have to understand that under national socialism, you have fascism, and fascism is defined as the blending of state or government power with corporate power. And there's really no question, I don't think anyone would try to argue today, that this country is not run by the large corporations. In fact, Mussolini, and you'll hear his quote in my book, The Rise of the Fourth Reich, said fascism may not really be the correct term. Said, and the correct term is corporatism, ruled by the corporations. Mm -hmm. And that's what we see happening today. Now, Tim, here's the only difference between fascist Italy and Nazi Germany in the United States today. In Germany and Italy, the state, the government, gained control over the corporations, and it was that blending of state and corporate power that produced fascism. Mm -hmm. In modern America, the corporations have gained control over the state. Yeah. But the end result's the same. One of the things that you talk about in the book that was really interesting to me was sort of how a lot of these social trends, like uh, vegetarianism and anti-smoking, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones, keeping people in shape, Protecting um, oh. the environment, anti-hunting, you know. Exactly. The National Socialists were a New Ager's dream come true. Exactly. Talk a little bit about that, because I didn't even realize just how many of these social trends 
actually had root in, in Nazi Germany. Exactly. Well, Hitler was a teetotaler. He didn't drink. He didn't smoke. He wouldn't allow people to smoke around him. Uh, he started a massive anti-tobacco campaign in Germany that was becoming pretty effective uh, until the war started. And, of course, when the war starts, everybody wants to smoke and drink to, <laughs> to get away from reality. And uh, But at one point, the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, had actually banned smoking on all its properties. Uh, so he also was the first uh, uh, to institute anti-pollution controls. Uh, in Europe, he also built the Autobahns, this wonderful system of highways. Um, and so he was anti-hunting uh, and, of course, anti-gun. And they immediately uh, used the gun registration list to take up weapons from anybody that wasn't a loyal Nazi. And uh, so we see that that in a, in that view, from that standpoint, well, you know, some of these environmentalists of today and the and uh, the uh, back to the back to the land movement and the uh, people who are going for the alternative health care. I mean, they would have all been big supporters of Hitler. And but here's the only problem with all that: some of that stuff is probably fine and good. And I, I don't argue that there's uh, should be uh, uh, the freedom to express opinions about how that we should not smoke, not drink, not eat meat, <laughs> you know, Hitler was a vegetarian, unlike that. But when you start codifying those ideas and those opinions into law and force people to do that against their will, that is fascism and totalitarianism. And we see that happening again in the United States today. For example, uh, you know, I, I'm old enough to remember when uh, Humphrey Bogart with Seal Ball was on television saying, smoke camels, they're good for you. Okay? And then they went through about a 20-year period where the tobacco industry was diversifying, getting out of there. And once they had gotten the bulk of their income diversified off into other products, then all of a sudden the health report started becoming more frequent about how smoking causes cancer and causes all kinds of problems. And uh, to the point now where cities and and, and governments are, are now passing laws saying you can't smoke. Well, wait a minute. Uh, for, in, for example, uh, here in Texas, I think I know it's this way in California, you go in a bar, you can't smoke. Yeah. Not because the guy who owns the bar says so, but because the state says so. And and to me, that's not freedom. Uh, freedom is the guy that owns the bar or the restaurant should be the guy to or the person to decide. If the bulk of his customers do not want people smoking in there, then he has the full right to put up a no smoking sign and say, you know, if you want to smoke, you're going to have to go somewhere else. But if you have an old bar and everybody comes there to smoke and drink and, and everybody wants to, then where's the state got the right to come in and tell you you can't do that? Exactly, yeah. They just, uh, they're just telling everybody how to live their lives nowadays, it seems. Exactly. And we see that all the way from the smoking and from control over public places to the schools. You can't even put up the Ten Commandments anymore on the wall, you know? Yeah. Well, what's that got to do with anything? And number one, nobody has to read it. And number two, if you read it, you don't have to abide by it. And so yeah. what's the problem? It's just nuts. In fact, we've gone to opposite extremes. There are now uh, some school districts up in the northeast and maybe in the Detroit area that are allowing time for Muslims 
to kneel and pray to Allah at certain points of the day, and yet you can't put up the Ten Commandments or say a Christian prayer. Well, see, where's the equality and freedom in that? There isn't any, unfortunately, it seems. We gotta spread this stuff around. Let's put it on the Internet. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Great heavens, what kind of radio show is this? And we've sort of, we've talked at length here on the show before, you and I, about 9-11 and everything. Now, why do you think things seem to have picked up the pace so much? It seems like, you know, in the last, since 9-11 or since 2001, this push toward a global society, new world order, everything else, seems to have just picked up pace amazingly compared to sort of the drip, drip, drip of it uh, prior to 9-11. Yes, they definitely have picked up the pace, and 9-11 was the big impetus, and that's why I encourage everyone to pay attention to the 9-11 truth movement. Uh, yes, there's some weird theories out there, and yes, all of it's not 100% accurate because we don't know what happened because all we've been given is a conspiracy theory, and that conspiracy theory is one of the weakest ones I've ever heard, which is namely that 19 devout Muslim fanatics managed to hijack four aircraft on in one day and with no fighter interceptors, and then unerringly guide them and crash them into these uh, three buildings, uh, and one, of course, crash in Western, Western Pennsylvania, all, and all and defeating our $400 billion defense system while uh, all the time being guided by a Muslim cleric using a laptop computer and a cave in Afghanistan. I mean, that's about the most ludicrous conspiracy theory I've ever heard, and yet... That's the one we're expected to accept, and that's the one that the corporate control media has shoved down our throat and will not even give fair comment to anybody raising questions about it, such as, how does two planes bring down three buildings in New York? Yeah. Uh, if we're, and if we're, if the war on terrorism is legitimate, and we have to be concerned about these terrorists who are trying to bring weapons of mass destruction into our country, how come to this very day they've not done any concrete thing to, uh, secure our borders? You know, <laughs> and the 19 hijackers who they still say, well, that's who did it, even though they also say, well, the planes were just disintegrated and, no bodies found, everything turned to ash, and yet we know those are the guys. Well, how come? Especially since European media, including the BBC, has accurately reported that at least seven of those suspects were turned up alive in the Middle East. It wasn't even them. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the head of the FBI admitted a few days after 9-11 that they were using false identities and fake passports and visas and that they really didn't know who they were. Exactly. Well, so how do we know Osama bin Laden was behind it all if we don't even know who it was that committed the crime? And speaking of Osama, who we're still using as the big boogaboo, you know, Osama going to get you if you don't give up your freedoms. The FBI now has publicly stated that the reason that they did not have on their most wanted list Osama bin Laden wanted for 9-11 is because they have no hard evidence that Osama bin Laden was behind 9-11, which happens to be the, very, uh, uh, the truth. The whole thing is just a sham. And again, when you go back and see how Hitler seized power in Germany, he was cha- in, in the uh, early January of 1933, Hitler was just chancellor. He was like the vice president. Hindenburg was the president. And uh, But then towards the uh, – uh, about a month or so later – their their parliament building, the Reichstag, caught fire and was gutted. Well, in those slower, kinder times, 
that was as big a shock to the German nation as 9-11 was to us. And then Hitler steps up and says, well, uh, give me the power and I'll take care of those communist terrorists. And so they rushed through the Enabling Act, just like we rushed through the Patriot Act, and uh, the same thing started happening. Uh, the demand for national identity cards, uh, gun registration and confiscation, uh, the creation of detention centers, which quickly grew into concentration camps. I mean, all of this is happening in this country right now, despite what anyone wants to believe, pro or con. Exactly. FEMA camps are a reality. They're here. When this Reichstag fire happened, was uh, like how we have the 9-11 truth movement, was there any sort of like Reichstag truth movement, or were people sort of uh, not as cynical as they are now? No, because, number one, people were more trusting in that day and time, and when the Nazis had complete control over the media, they had control over radio, and they had control over the newspapers, so they only got one side of the story, which is the same thing yeah. happening today, Yeah. okay? Uh, and there was fear. Fear. If you tried to get up and say something, the Gestapo showed up and you disappeared. Or the Nazi uh, brown shirts would show up and, and bust all your windows and tear up your store and, and break into your home. So uh, uh, people just didn't want to act up. And, and we see the same thing today, although uh, I don't know of any instance where somebody's actually had their store uh, wrecked or their home wrecked or something. But let's face it. Tim, a lot of people today, I hear them, they come up to me after uh, meetings and talks and stuff, and they say, aren't you afraid to speak out about this? Aren't you afraid they're going to come get you or something? So that fear is still here. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one question I want to ask you, uh, I've been wanting to ask you now for like the last couple of years, and it seems to keep falling off the notes, but I uh, managed, since we have some time here today, to get it in there. Now, obviously, you're you're a master of research into the JFK assassination, and you've seen, conversely, how this 9-11 truth movement has grown. Had the Internet been around back in 63, do you think where we're at right now as far as what we know about the JFK assassination, do you think things would have changed at all if there was yes. Internet back then? Yes, I think so, uh, because it's taken us 42 years or so to finally uh, garner enough, educate, uh, enough information and put it into the public that now most thinking people, in fact, polls show 85 percent, you know, almost way up there now understand that Kennedy was killed as the result of a conspiracy. And this conspiracy was covered up, if not orchestrated, by the highest levels of power in the United States government. If the Internet had been active in 1963 and 64 and 65, we probably could have known what we now know uh, by 1970. Okay. Uh, but uh, the media was controlled, the information didn't get out, and it was only after 42 years of books and whatever, and of course now the Internet, that information's just ballooning because uh, documents, photographs, all kinds of evidence can come, come forward. Uh, one example is that uh, I know even back in the 70s, I was trying to tell people that uh, David Ferry, a man connected to both the CIA and the mafia in New Orleans, uh, was connected to Lee Harvey Oswald, and the government and apologists were all debunking that, saying, no, no, that's not true. They never knew each other, yada, yada, yada. And finally, in the late 70s, uh, or maybe even into the 80s, public television finally aired a, 
a documentary, and in there they made public a photograph showing Ferry and Oswald together at a Civil Air Patrol meeting. So all the stuff that for years the government denied, all of a sudden nobody got up and said that's not true. It's just like all of a sudden, well, we all knew that, and we just move on. Yeah. Uh, uh, for example, young people today, they've all seen the Zapruder film. What they don't understand is that nobody saw the Zapruder film for more than 15 years after the Kennedy assassination. Wow. How did it end up getting out in the first place then? Well, because uh, Time Life, who was headed by these very globalists, okay, uh, they bought the rights to the Zapruder film, and although they selectively published uh, still-framed photographs, uh, including uh, reversing the order of uh, two of these frames that would make it look like he was shot from the back and he fell to the front, when in reality he was shot from the front and fell to the back. But they bought the rights to it, and they held on to it, and nobody got to see it until uh, the mid-70s when uh, a... Uh, Actually, I think what happened was that when Garrison in 1968-69 was trying to prosecute Clay Shaw in New Orleans as being part of a conspiracy to kill Kennedy, he subpoenaed the Zapruder film. And Time Life fought it all the way to the Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court, which had not been packed by neocons at that time, ruled that, no, this is a legitimate subpoena. You're going to have to turn over a copy. So, grudgingly, Time Life turned over a pretty poor copy of the Zapruder film to garrison investigation and of course they jumped all over it made copies spread it out all over the place and within a few years uh the, one of those midnight talk shows uh i think it was dick cavett uh all they actually ran it for the american public and that was the first time anybody had ever got to see the film wow and now you've kind of already touched on what's going on today with obama and mccain but let's extrapolate on that a little more what are your thoughts here as the election heats up, and, and, and uh, where do you think it's headed, and what do you expect for whomever is the new president in January? Well, considering the uh, rapid disintegration of our economy, uh, there are no, those now who are claiming that there may not be an election. Uh, but I, I'm not quite buying into that, because the people behind uh, the Bush administration, behind McCain and Obama, uh, they're not stupid. And I think they realize that if for whatever reason the November elections are either suspended or postponed or whatever, that that's going to push a lot of Americans who are just kind of now on the fence. They're just indecisive. They're not sure, they're not sure who to believe or what to believe. And that would push them right off the fence. And, and I could envision a, uh, uh, the villagers marching on Washington with pitchforks and torches. Uh, so I think they'd want to avoid that. But I think that we are in for some very destabilizing times as they try to get gain control over the economy. The main thing is, and this is why I would really encourage your listeners to grab a copy of my book, The Rise of the Fourth Right. Give it a read. Think for yourself. I'm not a politician. I'm not an evangelist. I'm not asking for your belief. I'm presenting you with some documented information. And you can make up your own mind as to whether you believe it or not, and more importantly, what you choose to do about it. But I think we all understand, and we all sense, that the United States of America has gone off course. We've gotten off on the wrong path somehow. 
The problem is we don't know who to blame for it. The conservatives blame the liberals. Liberals blame the conservatives. Republicans blame Democrats. Democrats blame Republicans. And I think that what we need to do is, if you'll read the information in my book, The Rise of the Fourth Right, I think you'll understand that it's these self-styled globalists who funded communism, who funded Hitler, and who are now trying to build the Fourth Reich in the United States. These are the ones we need to stand and point the finger to and say, these are the people behind all this, and we need to quit being divided and conquered and stand up as one, as Americans, black, white, red, yellow, Jew, Christian, Muslim, it doesn't matter. If you believe in America, we need to stand up and say, we're Americans and we're mad as hell and we're not going to take this anymore. Absolutely, yeah. And you uh, you sort of asked the rhetorical question towards the end of the book where you know, Germany, they sort of could look to America for deliverance, and you ask the question, where can Americans look for deliverance? That's the scary part, too, about what's going on nowadays, because there is really no superpower that's going to save us if something happens with America where it becomes, you know, even more totalitarian and insane. Exactly. We're we're pretty much on our own on this one, and that's why it's incumbent upon anyone who cares about this country, its future, which means the future of your family, your children, you better start paying attention now, and you better figure out what you can do to rectify the situation, or we're all going to end up in a, a a Nazi state, a national socialist state, where you, everywhere you go, you have to show your IDs, uh, your your uh, by computer and satellite, you're tracked 24/7. Uh, you can't even do any business. You can't go anywhere or, or buy or sell or do anything unless you have the approval of the state. And uh, of course, this is a 1984 Orwellian society that I don't think anyone truly wants if they understand the uh, the, the true situation. It's pretty scary. And do you have hope? I guess is the question too. Do you have hope that we can? avert this, or are you and I part of the minority of people who are actually thinking about this and a lot of the sheeple are sort of, uh, you know, they're going to be led to slaughter. I mean, I'm a little worried well, about that. Well, uh, two thoughts there. Number one, uh, it's been well established that at the time of the American Revolution, which established this country as a free and independent democratic republic, uh, only about 20% of the population truly supported the revolutionaries. And most people either wanted to stay good British citizens or they were just didn't care one way or another. Uh, and I think we see that uh, uh, in our country today. But you see that the colonists, the revolutionaries, won out. Uh, the next thing is there are more of us than there are of them. <laughs> you know, yeah. these, these globalists only number in a few thousand, and we're a nation of almost 300 million. If everybody just stood up and said no, I'm not going to do that, and then we wouldn't be doing that. Uh, and I've heard that all my life about the Germans with Hitler. Uh, Hitler was just one guy with a funny mustache. And if he said, you know, today we attack Russia, and everybody went, no, we're not going to do that. Yeah. Well, it wouldn't have happened. But the scary part, I guess, is that they didn't, and then that's what I worry about here with the Americans, too, that they're well, not going to. that's gonna. what's happening today. People are just so... Uh, I hesitate to say apathetic because apathetic uh, indicates they just don't care. Well, I think most people do care. The problem is they're they're just paralyzed because they don't quite know what to do about it, and they don't know who to believe. They don't know whether to listen to Rush Limbaugh or Ralph Nader or you or you know I don't know. And so it's time to start doing your homework. 
uh, read a little bit of history, find out where we came from, how we got to the point where we are today, so we can make some intelligent decisions about where, what we want to do tomorrow. Absolutely, exactly, exactly. And uh, I'm going to put over the book again here, The Rise of the Fourth Reich, outstanding stuff. Uh, you can get it at pretty much any major bookstore and, and any small bookstore probably and online as well. So it's easily available. you got to pick it up, folks. And at my website, jimmars.com, J-I-M-M-A-R-R-S.com. There you go, absolutely. Um, now, it's been a year since we talked to you. Uh, let's sort of just touch on some of the other weird uh, realms that you've explored. Let's talk about the UFO phenomenon a little bit. What do you think uh, of the past year? stuff. We had a major Stephenville thing. Seems like the media is picking up on UFOs again. Larry King's probably done half dozen at least episodes when prior to that he'd maybe done, you know, three or four in the last decade. So it seems right. like UFOs are hot again. What, what's your thoughts on this? Well, I'm not I'm not going to say, Tim, that we're turned the corner, but I really think we're at the corner in the UFO issue. For the past 60 years, egged on by official but covert government policies of denial and ridicule, it's, there's nothing there, folks. There's nothing there, folks. And if you persist in saying you saw something, then you may be a little bit mentally unbalanced. And that has been very effective uh, to close off discussion of UFOs. But as you've said, some of the more recent sightings, the O'Hare thing that happened in November of 2007, the uh, uh, the uh, Stephenville sightings, and what I see as the major change here is not that the government's opening up anymore, but that the news media is now treating it as a legitimate news subject and is not routinely ridiculing people who come forward and say that they've had these experiences. For anyone who chooses to actually research this issue, even if you discount 80% of the sightings, reports, films, photographs, it still leaves an incredible amount of evidence that something very unearthly is taking place in our skies uh, and probably uh, not attributed to human technology. And then if you study further, you'll find that this is not a recent thing. You go all the way back to the Bible. Ezekiel saw the fiery wheel in the sky. Hello, a UFO, a saucer. Uh, you go back to the ancient Sumerian tablets uh, in cuneiform, which are uh, still available because they would etch those cuneiform characters into uh, mud and then bake them so they're stone, they're brick. And they, these are still in existence, and they talk about the people who came from the heavens and landed on the earth. Yeah. So I don't know. For people to say there's nothing there uh, only tells me that they've got a uh, mind that's just wired shut. <laughs> there you go, yeah. And then to sort of like bring these two issues together, we talked here about this rise of the Fourth Reich, this, this empire uh, that is America. How do you think the UFO phenomenon sort of fits into that? I mean, do you think maybe they'll use that? Uh, a lot of people have speculated that they'll use that as sort of a global uniter in a way at some point. Are these yes, things working together is what I mean? You know, are they going to cross yeah. paths at some point? Yes, they will, but then therein lies a big danger because uh, it's been uh, even stated by people who have uh, knowledge of what the plans are that once uh, the threat of worldwide communism uh, died away, which it has, then next there would be the threat of international terrorism, which, of course, is what we're in the middle of right now. And then they say that when that doesn't work, the next uh, outside enemy is going to be a threat from space. 
But uh, Werner von Braun, who was the most highly decorated Nazi of them all, and who came over here and was the father of our modern space program, uh, as he said, it's all a lie. Okay? So uh, it's really incredible. And, of course, uh, if you uh, accept the idea that there are extraterrestrials involved here and that they have been involved all through history and that they're still here, then, of course, it stands to reason that if their objective was to uh, capture all the Earth people or destroy all our cities like in the movie Independence Day, they certainly would have done that long before now. Yeah, exactly. So, obviously, that's not the plan, and yet, you're right. Once they condition the, the population to the existence of extraterrestrials and life in space, then we're going to be prey for another false flag operation that they will blame on spacemen and say, okay, give us, give up the last of your remaining rights so we can protect you. And unfortunately, there will be too many people who will go, oh, yeah, yeah, please take all my rights. Just protect me. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's the scary part. And you say, and uh, we've sort of talked about how things are speeding up with uh, the post 9-11 world and that maybe we're at the corner of the UFO thing. So it kind of seems like maybe we're at the precipice of these two crossing paths, you know, within our lifetime, within a decade right. or so. I don't know. Oh, hey, Tim, not just within our lifetime. I think we've got uh, two to four years. Uh, I think things are speeding up because it's though it's as though the people who understand truly what's going on, who have the overview, and particularly the globalists who are trying to manipulate and control everything, I think it seems to me that they realize that we're on some kind of a time frame here. Uh, yeah. There's something coming up that they feel like they've got to get a lock on us before that happens, and I don't know if it's contact with extraterrestrials or maybe giant geophysical changes, earthquakes, and uh, we already see these these tremendous hurricanes and tornadoes, and, and we've had volcanic eruptions on the North American continent, I mean, uh, and all this within the past 20 years. So it's like almost as though they're on some kind of time schedule, and they feel like they've got to get control over everybody so that they can maintain control when whatever's going to happen happens. And of course, most people who've studied all this, they're, they're pointing to the year 2012. Yeah, but we can't put all our eggs in the 2012 basket because... Uh, no, of yeah. course not. That's, you know, that's, that's like... Uh, uh, that was Y2K. Like, uh, Y2K, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, uh, and in fact, you can go back to every century uh, in recorded history as the uh, new century approaches. There's always those who say, oh, it's all over, you know, doom is here, you know, the end is nigh. But uh, but this one, there seems to, I don't know, this one, there's there's more than just a few prophets or, or crystal ball gazers. This one, there seems to be, for example, in December of 2012, the Earth will come into direct alignment with the center of the galaxy, and they are already picking up uh, radio signals coming from the center of the galaxy on a regular basis, indicating even National Geographic raised the question, could this be uh, from an intelligent source? So there's just lots of wild things going on, and all I can say is uh, keep your powder dry and keep both feet on the ground and just stay balanced and ready to go any which way. Let's do the uh, the what's next for you. Last year you teased The Rise of the Fourth Reich, and you delivered, of course, uh, over the summer, and it's an outstanding book. What do you got in the pipeline that we can look forward to in the future from Jim Mars? Well, this one I can talk about because this will happen before the end of the year, sometime about November. 
Uh, I'm due out a book uh, that I did in conjunction with the above topsecret.com uh, website, and it is called Above Top Secret, and it is about 25 of the top conspiracies, mysteries, enigmas that we face today, and I think uh, everyone's going to get a really uh, kick out of this one because uh, it's not the uh, heavy, uh, footnoted type, academic type uh, work. This is just uh, my uh, description of these uh, various controversies and we're trying to give both pro and con so it would be a one-stop shopping <laughs> you know you, you get this book if you've ever wondered about what about ufos if you've ever wondered is god an alien if you've ever wondered about uh is there a nazi base in antarctica if you've ever wondered about what was it that hovered over the gate 17 at o'hare airport what came over St stephenville uh, is there really alternative energy sources available uh, and that are being suppressed? Uh, is the Federal Reserve System a scam? Who killed Kennedy? If you've ever had just the slightest question about what that is, here you go, this one book, and you'll get the, the overview from both sides. Nice. It'll be out uh, about November, available in any bookstore. It's kind of funny how some mysteries sort of uh – a fallout of vogue, if you will, like uh, spontaneous human combustion or Loch Ness Monster. I mean, these were things that were really big when I was a kid, like in the 80s, and now they're barely mentioned as part of today's uh, esoteric milieu, if you will. But, Tim, let me ask you this. In both those you mentioned, spontaneous combustion and the Loch Ness Monster, have they been solved? No. No. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. Uh, again, we we don't we don't have an answer to that, so we'll just ignore it. We'll act like that's not happening. But there's still mysteries, and they're still there, and uh, and uh, it's it's just that uh, since science can't uh, definitively explain them, then we just ignore them and act like they're not happening. Same thing with the crop circles; they're still going on. Some of the crop circles for the 2008 uh growing season are, are some of the most spectacular they've ever had. And yet the media won't touch it. It's nobody thinks about it. And if somebody does think about it, there's always somebody who go, oh, well, old Doug and Dave, those pup crawlers, they yeah. said they went out with a board and did that. You know, and even the news media parrots that without taking into consideration that the one growing season that Doug and Dave said, oh, yeah, we went out with a board and a string, and we stomped down all the crop, and we made those crop circles. We must have made about 200 of them. Well, they don't go and check that there were 2,000 of them that particular <laughs> season, not only in England, but also in Canada, Australia, United States. So, boy, Doug and Dave really got around. <laughs> there you go. All right, so you got the Above Top Secret coming out probably, you say, in November. What else you got up? Anything uh, speaking engagements you want to mention or anything coming up? Yes, I will. Uh, in fact, October the 25th, right here in, in Fort Worth, uh, I'm con we're having the first annual uh, Texas UFO Forum. UFO, you find out. <laughs> oh, nice. And uh, it, it'll be me. It'll be uh, Nick Redfern, uh, who has uh, written several books uh, pertaining to the government, what the government knows about UFOs. And we're going to have Ken Cherry, who is the state director of MUFON and led the investigation into the uh, Stephenville experience. Mm -hmm. uh, then on November the... 7th, 8th, and 9th, I'm going to be speaking at the 6th Annual Crash Retrieval Conference, mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. in Las Vegas later in November, from November about November 21st to the 23rd. I'll be in Dallas for the Lancer JFK conference, and will uh, apparently uh, will be there on Saturday the 22nd for the anniversary at the Grassy Knoll. There you go. Okay, nice, nice. Sounds good. And uh, aside from the uh, above top secret, uh, anything else? Any other big books coming out that we can look forward to, or, or are you keeping those under your hat for now? Yeah, well, I've got I've got some things doing around in my small brain, but uh, <laughs> I'm gonna keep those under my fedora hat for the time being. There you go. Well, I always look forward to your books, and I'm uh, looking forward to Above Top Secret, and I'll keep my eyes peeled for anything else uh, coming down the line. Thank you uh, for your kind words about the rise of the Fourth Reich, and I'm glad that you appreciated the information in there. And by the way, you hadn't mentioned this, or maybe didn't know this, but uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, even though it had only been on the bookshelves for uh, less than two months, uh, the Rise of Fourth Reich actually hit the extended New York Times bestseller list. So I thank you and I thank your listeners that are following my work and, and have contributed to that immediate success, despite a not very much uh, publicity. Well, Jim, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. As I said in the introduction, you're, you're the fabric and the foundation of this program. You were the very first guest on BOA Audio Season 1, Season 2, Season 3, and now for Season 4. I'm humbled by how successful this program has been, and I know that a big part of that is from help from people like you who gave me the chance and talked to me before we'd even done any interviews, and I really appreciate that. And as I've pointed out on endless occasions, if it wasn't for Rule by Secrecy, there wouldn't be any in all of America. So you're a hero to me. You're a mentor in a lot of ways. I have a world of respect for you, not just for the work that you've done, but for the wide berth of work that you've done. I mean, there's very few people that can speak intelligently and in depth on JFK, UFOs, parapolitics, 9-11, and now, of course, with the rise of the Fourth Reich, the whole Nazi emigration and expansion and the whole national socialist thing. I mean, you just do it all, and I find that just so refreshing in this world of esoteric specialization that uh, that you're just a master of all these different realms. It's been just great to have you back for the fourth time to kick off Season 4. So thanks again for coming on the show, Jim. Well, thank you, Tim, and thank you for all those accolades. But let me point out, I think another reason maybe for your success is the fact that unlike most of the mass corporate media, you actually deal with truth, with real subjects, and with subjects that are of great interest to a large number of people. And you don't pull any punches. You just get the information. And so people respond to truth, I've found. Well, thank you very much for those kind words. I appreciate it. That does it for the season premiere of BOA Audio Season 4. Big, big, super huge thanks to our very special guest, the legendary Jim Mars, for joining us for the fourth straight year to kick off the new season of BOA Audio. You can find out more from Jim at the website www.jimmars.com, J-I-M-M-A-R-R-S.com. Check it out. Up next, since it is the first episode of the season, we're going to askew BOA Audio listener feedback. Let me just roll out the contact information for you. If you want to get in touch with me and be a part of listener feedback, we'll bring it back next week, of course. Here's how you get a hold of me. Either write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or simply go to banalofamerica.com and click the contact button in the menu there on the left-hand side of the screen. Or you can join up at the official BOA forum, www.theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F. 
E.com. You can also get to that by clicking the forum button at the BOA website. That'll bring you to the US of E. It's totally free. Join up and kick off your shoes. Join in on the conversations. We'd love to have you as part of the BOA forum. I've got a huge pile of listener feedback that has accumulated over the summer. I'm sure I'm going to dip into that starting next week. But this week, let me tell you a little bit about what I've been up to in the last few months. Traveled out to San Diego, hung out with former BOA audio guests Greg Bishop and Marie Jones. And then this past weekend, I hosted Nick Redfern here at BOA HQ as Nick was in town for the Mass Monster Mash. That was a great time. Really enjoyed hanging out with Nick and just bouncing ideas off of him as far as future projects in the world of Esoterica. Also, while I was at the Mass Monster Mash, I met one of the great VOA Audio listeners, came over to my table there at the conference. His name was Joe. Big dude, kind of scared me at first, actually. Joe, if you're listening to this, you kind of scared me when you first met me, because he's just a big guy, and he was like, Tim Benall. And I was like, oh shit, this guy's going to stab me. But he didn't stab me. He told me he was a frequent listener of BOA Audio, and he got hooked on the show via his 17-year-old son, Joey. So I'm going to give a double shout-out here to Joe and his son, Joey, who I did not get a chance to meet. I guess he was back home in Pittsburgh. Big shout-out to those two great BOA Audio listeners. Thanks for coming over to the table, Joe. Thanks for not stabbing me as well. I was terrified. Other stuff going on for BOA. We're a part of the Anomaly Radio Network, of course, and this summer we joined up with the Black Vault Radio Network. And we also joined up recently with the Paranormal Radio Network, which is run by Joe Montaldo. So for all the great folks who are listening to us on the Anomaly Radio Network, Black Vault Radio, or the Paranormal Radio Network, thanks for listening to the program. Check out benallofamerica.com for our vast archives. I believe this is episode number 95 or 96. I don't know. I'd have to check my notes. But we've got a huge archive. Dig into that archive. I'm sure there's an episode or two or eight that you'll be interested in hearing. Other stuff going on. We're going to try and spice up the end of the program here. I felt like it got a little stale towards the end of Season 3, and I don't want to get into the habit of just repeating myself and doing the same shtick at the end of the program each week. So we're going to try and spice up the end of the show here. One thing we're really close to having wrapped up now is the BOA Audio spinoff series that we were teasing last spring, BOA Audio After Hours, which is going to spotlight some of the great BOA staff. I've already taped a few of those interviews. I expect I'll tape the rest of those over the next month or so, and hopefully we'll have BOA Audio After Hours coming to you at the end of each week's edition of BOA Audio Season 4, starting, I don't know, sometime in December maybe. Let's, let's shoot that as the goal. On top of that, I'm looking at maybe doing a little bonus audio at the end of each week's episode. Could be a different thing each week. I did tape one on-site interview at the Mass Monster Mash, and that'll be on BOA Audio in a couple weeks. I'm also thinking about maybe doing some guest update segments there, or an extended preview of the next week's episode. You know, maybe throw uh, a two, three, four, five-minute clip from next week's episode on the end of this week's episode, not literally, but you know what I mean. So we're thinking about doing that maybe at the end of the show too. So I'm kind of percolating on ideas for what to do here at the end of the show, but we're going to definitely spice it up with uh, some extra stuff and change it up a little bit here on the end of the program so people don't just shut it off. Hey, I don't blame them. Sometimes 
I'm kicking myself wondering why I keep repeating the same thing every week. So it's time to shake it up a little bit here at the end of the program. It's time now for the thanks portion of the program. For the last three months, you have not heard my voice, and chances are you haven't seen much out of me at Banal of America. But that's not to say that there hasn't been fresh and compelling content at Banal of America, because for the past three months, the outstanding BOA staff has carried the load at BOA with their tremendous weekly and bi-weekly columns. Let's run down the list of the esteemed and infamous BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, and Richard Thomas from Wales. I can't thank them enough. They are my friends, they are the website contributors, and they are ever-growing voices in the world of Esoterica, many of whom you'll be hearing from in the not-too-distant future on BOA Audio After Hours. Big, big, super huge thanks to the BOA staff for carrying me on their back. I'm back now with BOA Audio, and it's time to start contributing and really push the website at full strength and full speed here going on until the summer of 2009. The band is back together, and it's great to have all you listeners back in the audience as well. I've said it once, I've said it twice, I've said it way too many times, but you know what I'm talking about, folks. Benallofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, of America.com. B-O-A, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Normally the next part of the show is the closeout part where I ask you for donations, but I think we can skip over that just this week, because it is the first episode. Let's not ruin the good vibe by me running around here with my hat held out, especially in light of the current financial crisis. I do want to give a shout-out and thanks to all the great folks who made donations at the end of July when we made the desperate call-out for donations. You kept us afloat through the summer and into the beginning here of Season 4. We've got the next six weeks of episodes already taped and in the can ready for you. We've got many more after that scheduled to be taped. That is thanks in part to the great BOA listeners who made donations at the end of July and all throughout Season 3. Next week on the program, it is going to be a little Halloween theme going on for BOA Audio, but it's going to be Halloween-themed as only we can do on the show. Our guest is Dr. Stephen Rourke. He has been digging into the Spiritcom story for the past few years, and he has unearthed an amazing behind-the-scenes tale of what may have really been going on with the Spiritcom. Many, many people have heard about the Spiritcom story. It is one of the more bizarre tales of Esoterica sort of became big in the 80s and has become a meme into itself within the ghost and EVP community. Dr. Stephen Rourke actually looked at the story, dug up a lot of documents, dug up a ton of background information on these folks who were behind the Spiritcom story, and it is unbelievable stuff. That's next week, Dr. Stephen Rourke, The Spiritcom Story, Fact or Fiction, only on Banal of America Audio, Season 4. And on that note, we wrap it up here, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for coming back to Banal of America Audio. I am just beyond excited about Season 4 and where this program is going to go over the next nine months. Check out BOA. We've got a little audio preview of the first batch of guests that we've already taped. That will give you a sort of sample of what's to come over the next six weeks or so on the program. Come on back next week for Dr. Stephen Rourke. Until then, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening.
and signing off.